So, Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for just your goodness and your love. We thank you for the ability to not only hear the Word of God, but that you continually speak to us as we read the Scriptures, as we're investigating what did you say, what did you mean, and how does this apply to our lives, that not only do you do you speak out of those things, but you continue to speak through us through the week. You empower us to live out these truths. And I thank you, Father, that this is a living, breathing work of the Spirit. As your Word is coming forth, you are activating us to be your chosen people, to be an example to the world of who you are, and that we have the capacity to represent Jesus in a way that is both pleasing and honoring to you, Father, and brings glory to your kingdom. And so we thank you for that privilege. We thank you for that honor. We just pray that you just uh, be with us in this time as we study the Word of God and just cause our hearts to come alive. May they burn within us as we read the Scriptures and that, um, and that we come to a deeper place in our, in our relationship with you and in our activity with the work of the Spirit. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be going through the book of Ephesians. And um, just to kind of give you a synopsis of the book of Ephesians um, and historical background and so forth, I kind of build it. And and this morning, I mean, this evening is just going to be kind of an introduction to Ephesians. We're going to look at maybe the first 14 verses, but that's as far as we're going to go. Okay, so I just kind of want to build a case for why the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the theological implications for the book, um, what was the culture and the environment that they were addressing, um, what was the location there in Ephesus, uh, what were some things that they were dealing with, and then um, and then we'll just kind of look at going into the text, actually looking at the, the, the way that which Paul wrote it, why did he write these specific things, how does this affect us, how does this um, clearly give us an idea of who God is and who we are in God, and that's ultimately what we're going to see through the book of Ephesians, we're going to get a clear picture of who the Lord is and our identity in Christ. And so that's going to be kind of our our goal as we push through this, is to find out who am I in God and what benefits and rights do I have as a son or a daughter of, of the Heavenly Father. And and then we can begin to walk in those places and and bring glory and honor to Him everywhere that we go. And so that's going to be, kind of be our goal in pursuing this. So the, the book of Ephesians, um, it originally was not titled the book of Ephesians, at least according to some of the earlier manuscripts. Um, this, this book was attributed to Paul in the early church, so we absolutely know that Paul was the writer of this book. He, he addresses it in his own name. Um, so this book was written by Paul. It's estimated it was written between 60 and 62 A.D. Um, this was when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And so this is part of what we call the prison epistles. And so... What we see here in, in the book of Ephesians is not like some of the other letters that Paul wrote that were addressed to specific churches. Even though he is talking to them, this was meant to be a circular letter that was supposed to be go from Ephesians to Laodicea. He even told those in Colossians to, to get this book as well, or Colossia to, to get this book. So this was to be circulated throughout the churches. And of course, this is exactly what took place in the early church. This is one of the letters that was continually circulated throughout the churches. And obviously it was canonized and it was put into our scriptures later on. And so this carries great um, apostolic weight in it, and but it also addresses some of the deepest theological um, addresses towards us as our identity in Christ and us as the church and the body. And so 
Ephesians deals with, because he's not dealing with a lot of the problems that he was dealing with when he was speaking to individual churches like he did with Corinthians, like he did when he was addressing Timothy or Titus and their specific uh, shepherding of certain churches and the problems that they faced, uh, or like what he talked to in Romans and so forth. This one is, this one gives us some very clear and very rich language. And when we, when we dive into the language, I think what you're going to see is how amazing God is and the position he's put us in as his sons and daughters. It's really, you know, as I was reading um, and studying just this week um, and just refreshing things in my own heart, I really came out of that, that place of just amazed at how much we, how easy it is for us to forget who we really are in God. And so hopefully throughout this whole study, that's one of the things that's going to come up in your heart, the realization of who I am in God and the benefits that we have as, as his children. Okay, And so... Um, Interesting note, um, Ephesus is obviously a central hub um, throughout Asia. Its, its location um, was also central to the, the traffic of Rome throughout the Middle East and so forth, so they would come through that area. Uh, it was a port city, and so there was a ton of traffic going through there. Culturally speaking, you had the goddess of Aphrodite that was there, or Diana in some cases. That, so there was a big temple there. We know according to Acts that Paul called, caused a riot there because he he'd went through there at one point, ministered for a period of time. Then in his second journey, he came through there and ended up staying for three years. And that was the bulk of his ministry there in, in Ephesus. And that was that riot came as a result that Paul won so many people for, in the, in, to the Lord and those things that the uh, artisans who were making the imagery of Diana or Artemis, they were actually losing money because everybody... And then we hear the report of them you know, burning books and so forth. And, and I mean, there was revival taking place. And the gospel was going forth out of Ephesus... Um, in just an astounding way. Now we, we read in Revelation that was written by John um, that Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus and he says to them, listen, you, you've not tolerated those that have done evil. I know your work. I know all the stuff that you've done. This one thing I have against you is what? You've lost your first love. And so it's interesting that that's the case because Paul actually talks about... Now that, that book was written... Um, Revelation was written, you know, potentially up into the 90 ADs, right before John passed. <clears throat> this book was written in 60, and yet John mentions love um, quite a few times throughout the book of, of Ephesus. And so it's almost as if Ephesus, the Ephesians, when he was writing the book of Ephesians, that or the, the letter to the Ephesians, that it, what was taking place is he was preparing them, warning them, trying to build a solid foundation so that what? So that they could be all that God wanted them to be. Obviously, it was successful to some degree because what happened? They were consistent against false teachers. Timothy was also the pastor there for many, many years, and that's where you get First and Second Timothy. He was writing to Timothy, and he was at he was in Ephesus. Okay, and so you you read those, and you see all the encouragement that Paul gave Timothy about reading the scriptures, about being in sound doctrine, about the importance of standing uh, and and fighting the good fight of faith. We see all those things about standing against those that would try to creep in the church and um, and preach false doctrines that would preach deceiving and deceptive things that men would use to manipulate and control people, and so. But you don't necessarily have all of that. What you have is the foundational truths of who we are in God in this letter. And so that's one of the reasons why I think this letter is so good and it's, it's so important, I think, for even the season that we are in as a church to fully understand who we are so as we go out and we, we minister the gospel and even as new people come in 
that we're able to help them assimilate into those places as who they are in God. You know, one of the greatest aspects of teaching is not necessarily what, what is being taught, but what is being demonstrated. And so we need both the, the spoken word and the demonstration of that word in our daily lives. And, and this uh, material here that Paul wrote to, these, to those in um, Ephesus is, is really key for us to do that. So um, a couple other points that, um, that I want to make before we, we jump into the actual text. Um, one of the things that, that you see Paul dealing with as he's walking through this, this journey, if you will, of who we are in God, who we are in Christ, who we are as the church, and then what are the practical applications? So the first, the first three chapters is more of our theological underpinning or the foundation. So he's going to talk to us about, you know, why we're in the position we are in, you know, basically who we are in God. So he's going to give us that theological foundation. From chapters four through six is more of the practical application of how do we live that out? How do we be the church? How do we how do we do the things that He's called us to do? How do we live in a way that brings honor to our heavenly Father? How do we do it in such a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ? And so, um, so that's kind of the the breakdown in those two. But so we're going to have a quite a bit of time zeroing in on the first three chapters initially because we want to make sure that our foundation is built on the right foundation as well. And so that way, as we do those, as we set out to to apply these truths in our lives, we have that proper foundation to build on. Because if we try to if we try to do something without the proper foundation, what happens? When pressure comes, when storms, it crumbles. And so we want to make sure that we're building according to what God desires, not what, what not just what we think. And so we want to make sure that we line up with those things. So let's go ahead and begin. Verse one. This letter is from Paul, and I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, um, just because. <clears throat> Time I take it and translate it using the King James, and um, I would almost word it verbatim to how they did it here in the New Living Translation, and so it just it gets us to the point quicker, and I don't have to go into all the Greek and, and describe to you why this word means this. So I'm on, I'm going to use this as a a reference point of reading. So this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that's really important. That chosen by the will of God. He's going to actually, he's going to talk about this idea of being chosen. And it's, it's really, really essential that we comprehend and understand this idea of being chosen by the will of God. And we're going to go into the depths of this uh, in a couple of verses um, down the road. But what's, what's going to take place here is when you know you are chosen, for example, if you're, if you're chosen to be on a, a sports team, like we're picking teams and you get chosen first, what happens? When you're being chosen by somebody, what happens? It feels good, but beyond that, what does it do? Gives you confidence, okay? So when I know that I have been called according to the will of God, what does that bring? It brings confidence that God has chosen me, therefore He'll give me what I need to do what He's called me to do. And that's the aspect of grace that He he deposits in us in the call. And so... We're going to see that played out in the first um, 14 verses. He says, I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And I would just underline faithful followers. Those are, the, those are very, very important words that will play out throughout the rest of the book. Faithful followers. This is essential because if we're, going to, um, if we're going to walk in who God's called us to be, it's going to require faithfulness to follow him. And so this is the this is the essential element 
And who are we following? We're just following our own desires, our own whims, our own thoughts. No, it's following Christ. It's following, following the anointed one and his anointing. It's following Jesus. Okay, so that's going to be kind of our, our main underpinning as far as how do we get where God wants us to go? It's through faithfully following him. And then verse two, may God our Father, and this is a really interesting, um, word usage here, because usually in scriptures, especially in the Greek, what it usually says is the Father or the Heavenly Father. It doesn't usually implicate as far as as being possessive as mine or I belong to him. Now, this can be read in either direction as he is my father or that I am of the father. Are you following me? So this gives indication of belonging. It's the connection. It's the vital union. And so he's saying to them that I'm coming to you because I've been chosen by the will of the Lord to declare things to you as declare who Jesus is. An apostle is a messenger who brings the culture of that kingdom, who brings the, the, the ways of Jesus. Okay? And so he's saying, I've been chosen to do this. And then he tells them, he said, I'm writing to you because you are faithful followers. So that's, that's what's necessary in order for us to continue on in this conversation is we've got to become faithful followers of Christ. And then he goes on to say, May God our Father, so the implications that you belong, that you're part of Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And so He is our Father. And not only is He our Father, but um, He's, and we'll see in verse in verse 3 that He's also Jesus' Father. And it's because He is Jesus' Father and we're in Jesus, that's why He's our Father. Okay, So there's the point of connection. But what he's going to say here in this aspect of grace, he's saying that we'll have grace and peace. So what does this mean? Now, most of us who's been in Bible college to any length of time knows that um, just our running definition of grace is the operational power of the Lord to do his will. Uh, it also it also encompasses uh, the unmerited favor where the, the in other words, the forgiveness, the strengthening, the empowerment, the work of the Lord in our lives comes as a result of grace which is not based out of who we are, but it's based on our strength or our abilities, but based out of Him. So grace in that context uh, is, is an expression of steadfast love towards us. So it is the expression of God's steadfast love towards us. And that's really important because we're faithfully following Him. And why do we faithfully follow Him? Because of, of that He is steadfast, He's immutable, meaning unchangeable, he is, he is faithful. Even when we are not faithful, He remains faithful. And so the, the one in whom we're to emulate, the one who we get our DNA from, if you will, when we are in Christ, is this one whose grace, steadfast love, is constantly being expressed to us and through us. Because remember, grace is not just something that covers us. It's something that empowers us to release grace to others as well. So He says, so where does this grace come from? He says, from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, He gives grace and peace. And peace is the relational state of union and wholeness that results from grace. Peace is the relational state of union. So this is where, where I get connected to God. And as a result of that connection, I get whole. And wholeness that results from the grace of God. Relational state of union. And wholeness that comes as a result of the grace of God. So just in the just in the first two verses, 
we have here that as we faithfully follow Jesus, our Father and our Lord, Christ, does what? He brings us into right relationship. That's what the grace, that's what grace does. And that grace, as it's working in us and through us, brings us into this place of peace with God, and we then carry the peace of God. So it helps, it, it forms us as a whole person in Christ, but it also enables us to bring life everywhere that we go. Okay, and this is what he's declaring. May you have this in Christ and in, our, in the Father. Okay? Alright, so verses 3 through 14 in the Greek is one sentence. It is considered the longest, most cumbersome sentence in the Greek language. Of every place in the Greek that we have historically in Koine Greek written, both manuscripts of old and ancient, outside of the Bible and in the Bible, this is considered the most cumbersome sentence in the entire Greek language. Okay, And it's interesting because there are actually seven sentences in the book of Ephesians that are very, very lengthy, which is strange considering... I mean, it's not abnormal for the Greek to do that, but to the length in which these sentences are. So we literally from verse three and four, three, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence, and verses 15 through 23 is one sentence. Wow. And so 15 through 23, we can understand why it's one sentence, because it's a prayer, and oftentimes most prayers are one sentences in the Greek, and so that's not abnormal in itself, but... 3 through 14 is extremely abnormal because he goes through multiple different... Right, so this is, in Paul's mind, this is this is why we're going to group it just for today. We're going to go, go from 3 to 14 and stop there. Because in Paul's mind, this is all one train of thought. Okay? So we don't separate these into different ideas. This is all in, in captured in this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it first from 3 through 14, just in its entirety, so we get the picture of what we're talking about. Then we're going to go through and we're going to dissect and look at what is all that he's saying. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan." God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Okay, so that was a long sentence, right? Oh, 
All right, so let me just give you a breakdown of what what it is that we're talking about here. So verses verses four through six is the father's role. Verses four through six is the father's role working working in us. Okay. Verses seven through twelve describes the son's role. And verses thirteen through fourteen talk about the Holy Spirit's role. Okay. 13 and 14 are the Holy Spirit's role. Okay, So let's go jump all the way up to verse 3. And there's some very interesting things here in the Greek that get missed in our, in our translation. So all praise. That word praise is the word E-U-L-O-G-E-T-O-S. It's where we get the word eulogize. E-U-L-O-G-E-T-O-S. And so all praise, this word means to extol. It means to speak well of. Just like when you were given a eulogy at someone's funeral. You would talk about how good they were. You talk about all the wonderful memories that you have. And so it's saying here that all praise, we're to speak well of. Of who? Of God. So this is, this is even what we talked about this morning, giving testimony. What are you doing? When you're giving testimony, you're speaking of who God is, of His actions, of His expressions, of His goodness, of the manifestation of who He is. And so all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So let's just break this down. The word blessed... In the Greek, it's, it's, it's two words actually. It's H-O, and then the, se- the second word is E-U-L-O-G-E-S-A-S. So H-O-E-U-L-O-G-E-S-A-S. Now what do you notice about that second word? <laughs> Sounds like the first one, doesn't it? It is. So, so, the, so praise is the verb, blessed is the adverb, or the noun that comes off of that. And what we have here is these two are connected in the Greek language because they'll, they'll connect words and they'll scatter them all out. And, and how do you know what word is applied to what place? And so he's saying here that to speak well of God, what does it do? It brings about benefits that prosper you. That's what the word blessed here means. It means to benefit or to prosper you. So one, one word that we can see, um, when someone, when someone, and this this is common, it's interesting that you have these play on words in the in the English language connected to the Greek here. But in the English language, oftentimes the person that gets up and eulogizes the person who's died is all, is oftentimes the benefactor of their will, the one who receives the inheritance is usually the one who's the closest to them, and they're the ones who who are speaking of them the most often. Isn't that interesting? And so one of the things that, that, you know, people talk about favor, they talk about, you know, the goodness of God, and, and you know, you have these slogans that people preach, they say favor isn't fair, you know, they, they, all these different things. But there is, there is a way to grow in favor and to grow in the benefits of the Lord, and it is through praising God. As we praise God, we actually begin to acquire that which He's given us. So it says here, it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So we actually have a, a very clear um, lineup here of what's going on. So we have what what's being given. All spiritual blessings, benefits, and endowments. That's what's been given here. All spiritual blessings. These are the benefits, the endowments, the inheritance that we have in Christ. Okay, Where is it coming from? Where does he say these are coming from? No, it says in heavenly places or in heavenly realms. So he's he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. So here, this is this is this phrase is actually used five times in the book of Ephesians, in heavenly realms. And what is what is Paul saying to them? He's saying this is a promise that's been guaranteed by God. So it's it's. When, when you're a benefactor of, whether it be an inheritance or, say, an insurance claim or whatever, you've got this contractual agreement that says, if something takes place, then this is yours. In the case of inheritance, when this person dies, you receive this. In case of an insurance claim, a storm comes, tears something up, then you have that right to claim those things, okay? And so we see very clearly that it's through, it's not only through the praise of the Father, but it's whose, whose Father? Christ's Father, who's now our Father, okay? And how do we, how do we enter into this? As we speak of Him, as we declare Him, and as we are found where? In Christ. In Christ, what happens? All these blessings, all these spiritual benefits come to us, but where are they located at? In heavenly realms, okay? So let's talk about this idea because this concept um, sometimes people can have a hard time with this and they they take on a sense of passivity in their faith because they think, well, that's one day when we get to heaven. These are the benefits that I have in Christ. This is the same word that's used like blessed are those who mourn. And it makes you think that because you're mourning, you're going to be blessed. But that's not how it really means. Correct. Those who are mourned can expect this heavenly... Yes. Um, whatever you said. But... But it's like, but that spiritual covering. Because I remember when I was, I mean, it's just like you, it's just it turns it around. Like because you're mourning, you can expect heaven. Uh huh. Because of your position with Christ to take care of you. That's right. And, and it's just kind of different. It's so, not like saying, oh, you're mourning, so you're blessed because you're mourning. Well, no. No. Yeah. But in the middle of it. But in the middle, I mean, um, because you're in Him. And, and that and that's going to come to you. And that and that's the key. That's the key word. So so what I did is I just I just I ask uh, you know these these questions. What that's the spiritual blessings, the benefit, the endowment. Where in heavenly realms, and then how in Christ. It's it, when we're in Christ, when we're united in Christ. That's what that's how. This takes place. It's through our relationship with Christ that we do that. Now, let me just jump back into this idea of heavenly realms because you're exactly right when you talked about that just because you mourn doesn't mean you do that, but it's because you're in Him that you can expect that He's going to come and comfort those who grieve, that He's going to come because I'm in Him. And so you you, you move your faith into a place of, I, I'm mourning now, but I expect joy comes in the morning. Why? Because it's the promise of the Lord. And so, um, notice in Scripture 
When God gives a promise, the individuals do not have to ask for that. You never see in the scriptures Joshua, when he's going into the promised land, said, Lord, give us this land. You never see one prayer where he prays that. Why? It's already given. So it's already been done in where? In the heavenly places. It's already been accomplished because God's promised it and He's not a man that He should lie. Those promises are yes and amen to us. And so when God says something, we don't have to repeatedly go back to Him to acquire that. We've already been given that. Instead, what took place? What did He have to do? He had to step out in faith and walk into the land. And what what did He do in order to acquire that land? He stayed in union with God. He had to continue to pray. He continued to ask God. When he chose to, you know, he consulted the Lord where Jericho was concerned. What happens? He was staying in that vital union in Christ, if you will. And what happened? God gave him strategy, wisdom, understanding, and he was able to acquire what was promised, the benefits, the endowments, the inheritance, that which was in heavenly realms was manifested and they conquered Jericho. When they went into AI, what happened? They, he did not stay in Christ, if you will, even though Christ was not born. He was not in that vital union with God. They chose to do it in and through their own ability and strength. And what happened? Failure took place. And they were like, well, what's happened? And when they consulted the Lord, they found out there was a breach where, where God had said, said something. And it goes back to being faithful followers. They had not faithfully followed what God said. Someone had taken those things from Jericho that were supposed to be the Lord's tithe or the Lord's offering. And so they had not faithfully followed what the Lord said. But if if he had continued to consult the Lord, he would have found those things out and could have addressed it. Correct? And so so again, you see that tying in at the very beginning, the importance of being faithful followers. That just because we're in Christ does not mean that we're now... um, we don't have to do anything or that we don't, we're not, there's nothing required of us or there's no demand from heaven on our lives. There still is the, the requirement of walking in that daily relationship and faithfully following Him. Okay, so he says, um, All praise to speak well of God, to extol Him, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. So He's given us benefits. He's caused us to prosper. He's given us an inheritance with every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So we're united with Christ. This is the, this is the how these things are taking. Staying in that place of being in union with the Lord. And so, you know, in, in the English language, we see all kinds of words that give us understanding we're union. We take communion, common union. Okay, we, we see the union between a man and a woman, which is symbolic in a marriage covenant that also speaks of that type of union. Jesus talks about our union with him and the father that that he prays for us in John 17, that we would be one, even as him and his father are one. And that as we are one, that we would be one with them. It's this whole concept of being united with the Lord, being in Christ, walking with him. And so this this language is very, very important at the very beginning here, because He builds on this language throughout the text. He talks about the importance of being in God, found in Christ, being united with Him. This is the central theme of our foundation of being who God's called us to be. If we don't get anything else out of today, it is that place of staying in union with the Lord. And how do we stay in union with Him? He gives it very clear. It's the importance of faithfully following the Lord and also continuing to praise Him. All praises. 
meaning we continually declare who He is. We continue to speak well of the Lord. We continue to testify of who He is. And in doing so, what happens? We're, we're both receiving of the grace of God, the peace of God. We're able to walk in the benefits and the blessings that we have in Christ. Okay? So let's, let's dive into this a little deeper because he's going to show to us what is actually, how this is taking place. So verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So here we see this word love. This is the word agape. It's interesting because this one particular place is talking about God's commitment and steadfast love towards us. All the other places in Ephesians flips it around and, and shows the demand of us having agape towards God or one another. Okay, So this is the one place that he's building on in the initial stages that it was because of this love, this commitment, this steadfast love of God towards us is the reason that we have this position in Christ. And when did this love begin? Did it happen just because he saw you one day? Oh, you're so wonderful. No, the Bible says that he saw us before the foundation of the world. So this is before creation. God knew us. He saw us. And he loved us. Which is a, which is a pretty powerful implication here throughout the rest of the, the text here. Because this love is the foundation of why God does what he does. It's why he sent his son. It's why the son died on the cross for us. It's why he shed his blood. It's this love that's the motivational force behind. And, it, and, and God even makes it clear that this is not uh, an aspect of the character of God. It is God. God is love. And so we have this, this place that love is God. And so he says here, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Now, again, I, I mentioned that word chose because we saw it in the very first verse. Paul, chosen by the will of the Father. And so... God has chosen us. This is, this is a, and this is, can be a sticky theological place because people come up with all kinds of, of ideas of what does it mean to be chosen? What does it look like? They talk about election. They talk about predestination. And he talks about a lot of these things in this passage here. But you gotta remember, this is all in one paragraph. So he's talking about this. And so what is this whole paragraph talking about? He's talking about us being in Christ. So just to kind of give you a, a synopsis real quick again of the, these first uh, several verses here. We're talking about us in Christ and how does, he, how does he end this sentence? With us Jews were in Christ first, but now you Gentiles have heard the gospel and now you're in Christ. And so what happens? We're all here to walk with God to reveal who he is. And so what does the chosen mean? So he chose Israel to be the carriers of his message. It's not necessarily, this language is not talking about you as an individual. He's talking about us as a people. Okay, And this is where theologically, when, when you talk about cho- uh, being the elect of God, the, those who are predestined by God, oftentimes we make it an individual topic, and that's where it gets all funky. That's not the context of what he's saying here. He's not talking about us as an individual. Matter of fact, the book of Ephesians, it refers to us as the body. You see the language us and we and the body and the church. I read today that that's how the church read it up until Augustine. Mm-hmm. And then after Augustine, they changed it the other way. That correct, correct. So the first church, that's the way they understood it. They understood this concept. And then after that, that shift, 
there was there was something that took place, and then we see that in the in the Protestant Reformation because they were trying to get the word into the individual livers, building up the authority of the believer, helping them understand who they are. That it became so individualized in that sense that we see, like in the Calvinistic movement and so forth, the Reformation. You see them pinpoint on this, and they went they go so far into the other degree that they basically say, you know, God knew everybody that He wanted individually chosen. And that you can't, nobody has any power or authority to do this, and they bank it on the sovereignty of God, not reading the fullness of Scripture that talks about, yes, God may absolutely know all that are His and ours. The Bible says that. But the fact is, who is He talking about in the context of this verse? Because we can't, we can't make it what we want it to make. We gotta understand it from the concept of what was He talking to, to the original reader in the context of, of the original, um, letter here. What was he saying? He was saying the Jews were chosen by God to be the the ground in which the Messiah would come out of, the people group that the Messiah would come out. They were the ones who had the benefit of a covenant with God. Jesus came out of that place of relationship and revelation that was revealed through Abraham, through the prophets, through David, through through all these different ones, through the Jewish lineage, okay? And they were chosen by God, a people, to demonstrate who God was to all the nations. Now that Jesus has come, the manifestation of who the Father is, He's saying, now you Gentiles have also heard the good news and the message about Christ. And now He's saying, you now are in the place of being chosen to what? For His Father to be your Father for you to be united in Christ. And so we see this place of, of this, this place of chosen. So it says, even before he made the world, God loved us, his us, it's all of us, both Jew and Gentile, because that was the only separation in Paul's mind in the context of this one sentence. You following me? It wasn't this sinner over here and this saint over here. It was, it was a people group of the Jews and then everyone else on the planet, Gentiles. Are you following me? Everybody understands this concept? Even before the world made, God loved us and chose us in Christ. So Paul being a Jew, them being a Gentile, he's making it about us. Are you following me? Because he, he makes it very clear when he, he changes the language and says, we, Jews, and you, Gentiles. So at the beginning, he talks about us. So he says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. Where? What's our position? What did he choose us to do? To be in Christ. So what is what when we're being chosen, what is the choosing? God chose that how would we find our identity? How would we know who we are as a people? How would we come into a place of, of, of our calling and, the, and to fulfill the will of God? He chose us to be in Christ, and it's in Christ that we understand our being. How does humanity understand their purpose and, and God's plan for their life? It's in Christ. That God, when did He choose this? Before He ever created the world, He made the decision to choose that all of humanity would understand their identity in Christ. Okay? And so He goes on further to to describe what's taking place. What does that look like? To be in Christ. It means to be holy and without fault in His eyes. So holy and to be at fault. So this is something that God did before the foundation of the earth that's in Christ in order for us to 
to acquire this holiness and this uh, blamelessness, if you will, is to do what? To be found in Christ. This is the means in which God has chosen for us to be made right in His eyes and to be made holy, being in Christ. So it's in this vital union in Christ that we have our being, that we are made holy, and that we are faultless. It says, God decided in advance, so again, this is something predetermined in eternity past, God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. So there's our foundation again. It's through Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure. So so the the language uh, that we see here, of the Father, the Father in eternity past before creation was celebrating with the Word, Jesus, of, of what was going to take place in Christ that sons and daughters would come to know Him. That's interesting, isn't it? Because not only did the Scripture say that God knew us, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, but the Bible also says that, that before the foundation of the world, Christ was crucified. So God knew what was going to take place, and they celebrated these things. It was His great pleasure when, in eternity past, before this ever happened, because He knew what was going to take place. That He had chosen, because He had already elected, that how are we going to walk in His family? It was going to be in Christ through the blood of Jesus. And He, it was His pleasure to do this. So the visual picture we see here in this context is God the Father running to Christ and embracing Him and embracing Christ, all those that are in Him get embraced. Yeah. That's good. So, so Jesus does the will of the Father. He is a faithful follower of God. He remains holy and faultless before the Father, he accomplishes even to the point of shedding his own blood to obey the Father. He raises again. He empowers those that hear the gospel. He ascends to the Father. What happens? The Father fully embraces him. And when the Father embraces him, he's embracing us. The love, this agape that he talks about, that God loved us in eternity past was because of His great love for His Son. The Bible says that in eternity past, He loved working with His Son in creation so much He wanted more sons and daughters. And so we have this beautiful picture of the Father. He's not Jesus' Father alone. He's now our Father. Because remember the language? He's already, he's already positioned us to hear. Our Father is what? He's chosen to love us, and, to, and, and as a result of us being in Christ, we're now holy and faultless before Him. He's embracing us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So this adoption piece in verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into His family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do. This was His decision, not yours. Okay, This is really important because... God decided this before you ever got, before you ever knew Him, God decided that His love for you was so vital that Christ had to come, that He had to send His only Son so that He could fully embrace us. 
He understood this. He longed for it. It brought him great pleasure. And so in verse 6, so we praise God. So here again, this praise. So we speak well of God. We declare His goodness. We rejoice in Him. We extol Him. We worship Him. So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. So Jesus... So in in theology, um, oftentimes the Holy Spirit is referenced to the love that the Father displays to the Son and the reciprocating of that same love that only Jesus is capable of giving back to the Father is the role of the Holy Spirit. It's this, this interaction between the Trinity as the Father loves the Son and Jesus obeys and loves the Father back. It's the, the Holy Spirit's place of this affection and deep, deep commitment and union and love of one another what takes place is the work of the Holy Spirit between the Trinity. Okay? This is really important because he's telling us in these, in this one sentence, the role of the Father. He shows us the role of the Father to adopt us. He chose us. He loved us in Christ. Okay? So the second part of the Trinity is Christ. And it says here in verse, um, six, he says to us, this kind of is the transitional verse between, you know, the, from the Father's role to Jesus' role. In verse 6, So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us to, to onto us who belong to His dear Son. Verse 7 is what the Son did. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins, and He showered His kindness on us with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us His mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill His own good pleasure, and this is the plan. At the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, so He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. God's purpose, and he goes to describe that. So let's just jump back up here, and let's look at a couple of things that he describes about the Son. He is so rich in, mer- in kindness and grace. Now this is both the Father and the Son are this way. They're both rich in kindness and in grace, that he purchased our freedom with the blood of the Son and forgave our sins. So let's, let's talk about this for just a moment, because this is, I think, where we, we often have... Um, Issues in in the church, in our culture at least, um, where people begin to have progressive ideas of who God is because they'll embrace the loving Father who, who embraces us in Christ. But then the, the reality of that Jesus had to shed His blood that in order for us to be forgiven is something that we, we talk about but not fully wrap our minds and hearts around, is that our deeds required the blood of Jesus to be cleansed of. Like this, it, sin was not just something of, I made a mistake, or I have just simply fallen short. It was that, I've, that I am no longer in that place which brought the Father pleasure, 
and that now in order for me to be in that place that brings the Father pleasure, I have to do what? I have to go through the blood to be in Christ. And the sacrifice that was required to forgive our sins is not something light to be trampled upon. It's something extremely heavy and it's something extremely important for us to grasp that the blood of Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. It was the ultimate expression of this glorious grace of God, of His kindness and of His grace. So he's talking about here that that the kindness and the grace of the Lord. So this is the ultimate form of kindness. One in which we did not deserve, but it was because of this deep love that He had for us. What had to happen? His Son had to die. The one in whom He loved. The one in whom He had so much pleasure with that He wanted more sons and daughters. The very one that He had a perfect union with that he, he was, there was no separation between him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. They were one with one another. There was never any break in relationship. This one in whom he loved had to die in order for others to come in in whom he could love. When we, when we look at it from that point of view, sin is not just, oh, we just mess up and God will forgive us. No, when we see what had to take place in order for us to be forgiven, it brings a weightiness to what God has done. It brings a weightiness to who He is, but it also is a weightiness to what is, what He's calling us to. That is, this is not, um, being in Christ and being a faithful follower of Jesus is not just something that we add to our lives. It's not just something that we do on a Sunday or that we do every once in a while. This is a calling to be united in Christ. He's calling us to be in Christ, to be one with Him. Jesus paid the ultimate price because the Father wanted this union between Him and us and us and Him. Okay? And so when we do not make much of the blood of Jesus we end up um, devaluing the work of the cross and we actually begin to remove the message of the gospel from our lips. When, when we think about it, um, and, you, and you see this take place um, in progressive churches where they've, they've, they've gotten off the Word of God, they quit thinking about the Word of God as inherent, they quit looking at the sacrifice of Christ, you know, they, they actually... A sanction that which God says is unholy. You see this, this downward spiral. It's like, how did they get there? It began right here in this place where you minimize the necessity of the blood of Jesus that it required all of Christ to give of all of Himself for us. It was the shedding of His blood that brings us forgiveness. So this is, this is a central point in that in the place of us understanding who we are if we don't realize the price that was paid for us then what happens we will minimize things that come into our lives that are not him we'll make light of those things in other words if just to to kind of flip flip the script in another direction if if someone was coming 
and and you had your child with you and they were going to kill your child in front of you, what would you do? Almost anything you could to stop that person, even even sacrificing your own life. Okay, so what did God do? God did the opposite in his kindness and in his grace. He gave his son to be sacrificed at the altar of our sins. To take on the punishment for our transgressions and our iniquities. And when you realize the weightiness of that decision from the Father's place, but then the weightiness of Jesus' position to yield Himself in obedience to the Father, think about the realm of love that transpired between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father for our benefit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the, Jesus said to, the, to those that were His disciples, it's far better that I go away because when I go away, I'll send another who is like me and he will do what? What's he going to do? He's going to share with you all truth. He's going to reveal who I am. He, and, but he's also going to do something amazing. He's going to shed abroad in your heart the love of God. So the Holy Spirit is the one who actually brings us into this for a lack of phrasing, a love fest between the Father and the Son. Actually, one, one scripture actually refers to it as a love fest. They're talking about this communion. Like when we take communion and we celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus, what we're actually doing is we are feasting in that place and remembering the price that Jesus paid so that the, and the, it is in that place that the Holy Spirit will bring to our remembrance and bring us into this place of agape love, of commitment, of steadfastness, of faithfulness to one another, of oneness with God. And it's in this place that that's why there are times in the presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit's moving. You have no words to express, just your tears, just this the warmth of the Lord that, that flows all over your being, and you feel the the joy, the pleasure, the ecstasy of, of who God is in that moment. What, what's happening? You're actually encountering the depth of love that is between the Father and the Son. Because in those places of worship, as you're praising God, as you're lifting up the name of God and singing praises to Him, as you're yielding to your members to Him, as you're, as you're, as you're laying before Him in worship and honor, what's taking place is you are actively working in Christ in this union. You are being united with God and the results of that, of embracing who God is and, and asking for more of the Lord, what's taking place? You're experiencing that love, the Holy Spirit. Flowing over your entire being. And what does it do? It does the very thing that he says, May God the Father, in verse 2, grant to you grace and peace. What happens is the manifestation of this, this incredible power that comes over us, that empowers us to be and to do what God has called us to be and called us to do. This grace comes over us that both forgives cleanses and empowers. And then the peace of God comes in and makes us whole. 
It's not just the absence of chaos. The peace of God is the wholeness. It's the shalom. It's the, it's the perfecting. It's the working of the Spirit of the Lord to make us whole in Christ. So we have, so another scripture says we have our, we have our being, our, our understanding, our, our identity is in Christ. Who we are is in Christ. And so it's in this place through the blood of Jesus that we enter in. That's the only way. Hebrews says if we, if we ignore that, there is no other sacrifice. If we trample on the blood of Jesus, what other sacrifice is there for us? There's nothing as powerful as the blood of Jesus. And it's the only thing that can bring us into this union. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. And so he says um, in verse in verse I'm going to jump back to verse six because there was something I wanted to highlight there in the in the New Living Translation it says so we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. Uh, it also can be translated to us who are in the beloved. We're in this place of being loved, in this place of this intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. So um, another way of looking at that is, um, you know, where it talks about um, the the old, where, where Lazarus, the passage there with Jesus, where he talks about Abraham's bosom, that they're in Abraham's bosom. So they're in the the beloved. They're underneath that covering. So so this is this is language that was symbolic of of their culture and their time. But it's also biblical language in the Hebrew as well of, of just like a, in a house, you're of that house. So they would say, I'm of the tribe of Judah, or I'm the tribe of Benjamin, or I'm this. So they're of, it's, it's, it's what? It's a place of identity. So when, when grace comes, it says, it says, so we praise God, so we speak of God, of His goodness, of who He is, we extol Him for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who what? Who are in the beloved. So we receive this great grace because we're in this place, this this relational communion with the Father and with the Holy Spirit and with the Son. Because why? He tells us later because because He showed His kindness and purchased our freedom through the blood of Jesus. And He forgave our sins. It says in verse 8, And He showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Now, interesting... Um, words here because we enter in through the blood of Jesus and what do we do? We, we, we are able to receive grace and peace. Okay. We come into union with God, but then he, then he says he showers his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. And, and in this place, wisdom and understanding are really, really, really important. Okay, so wisdom, wisdom is a revelation of what's been promised or the benefits we have in Christ. This is, wisdom is basically the, the pulling back the curtain to see what's in heavenly realms. Okay? So again, we're, we gotta look at this in the context of this whole sentence, right? So what, what does this wisdom do? It is, it reveals to us, it's revelation, of what God has promised to us that are united in Christ or who are in the beloved. So wisdom is the unfolding, it's the revelation. All of a sudden we see what we have, 
what benefits we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, and then understanding is the practical application of walking it out. So not only do we get to see the benefits we have, understanding is we get the practical understanding of literally walking it out. Which to me is is the hardest part, right? So what does he say here? He says, so he showers us with his kindness, and his kindness brings what? The love of the Father, the love of the Son, the blood of Jesus shed for us, His grace and His peace. That's what His kindness brings. But on top of that kindness, He says all wisdom, meaning you can have full revelation of what your benefits are in Christ, what you've been endowed with, what is what He is, what you're a benefactor of, of what your inheritance is. You can have that understanding of the promises that God's given you. He will show that to you. And notice He doesn't say some of it. He says all of it, all wisdom. So there's no limit that God says. The question is, what will you pursue? What will you go after? He doesn't put a limit here, and I believe it's on purpose because He desires for us to go after what Jesus paid for. You you, you look at an Old Testament reference where the prophet um, told, um, I can't remember his name right offhand, he was going to take over as king, and he's the one who killed uh, Jezebel. He said to strike his arrows down, and he only did it three, and the prophet rebuked him because he should have done it at least six, five or six times, and he would have seen all the promises of God fulfilled in his life. Instead, he rebuked him because he was not passionate about seeing those things take place. And so we see, we see here that along with all wisdom and understanding... Now, he goes on to describe this. He says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ. So what what is um, this word mystery is always a great word. It means something hidden for you. It's not something hidden from you, something hidden for you. So he says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will, something that's been hidden for you. He's revealing it. What did we just learn? We now have all wisdom. And understanding. So we, we have access. So you have access to this. Why? Because we're in Christ. We can now pursue what is what did Jesus pay for through the blood of Jesus. Not only was it forgiveness, not only was it just forgiveness, but it was also access to all wisdom, to all understanding. And so he has now revealed to us what has been hidden for us regarding Christ which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance of God. Now, this this place right here, um, it can be interpreted two different ways. Uh, one way it can be interpreted, it can, it can say, we are... God's inheritance. In other words, we are he, we are his reward. Meaning like he looks to us and says, "You are my inheritance." In other words, you're the you're the benefit of what I've done. You're the reward of my work of my hand. You you're you are the you're the endowment of all that I've labored for. Or it can be read from the other standpoint, that we will receive an inheritance from God. Both are applicable in Scripture. 
both can, it can be translated either way here. Okay, now it's interesting because if you go down to verse 14, it says the Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised. Okay, so in the context of, and we're still in the same sentence, right? So, so he could say it in both ways. He could say that we are his inheritance and he, and he is our inheritance. Which, which would flow in the idea of us being in the beloved and this union with God and this transaction between us and God as far as in Christ, being in Christ, because it was a transaction between Jesus and the Father. That, that could flow in, in that. Or it could mean simply that, that he's just saying that we have an inheritance from God, which is also applicable, which is true to what we see written in Romans and in other places, that in Christ we have an inheritance, we're co-heirs with Christ, and so forth. That would also flow with the adoption idea that we're now part of the family and, that, and part of the inheritance. But either direction is a scriptural truth. It's something that's verified in Scripture because other Scriptures actually say that we are his inheritance or we are his reward. Okay? So a lot of people, I've seen people argue about this point. It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, either way, it's good news, right? It's like, it speaks good either direction. So he says here, at the right time, the second part of verse 10, at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So what is this time? And this is a point of, of discussion that we're going to kind of open up because a lot of people, they, they say that, well, the time is when when the millennial reign comes, or when everything is is now, when sin is put under the feet and Jesus comes back and the millennial reign takes place and so forth. That's where a lot of theologians have in the last 100 years. Okay, But we see Jesus in the heavenly realms has what? Conquered death, hell, and the grave already. He's already victorious over there, and the Bible says he's sitting at the right hand of the Father as what? The champion of our faith, the one who's already won the battle. And so I, I am of the persuasion that what is he's talking about here is the time that we're, we're, that he's calling us into this place is, is conditional in the sense, not of, of like a time and a season in the sense of this is a specific, um, moment in a chronological order of time, but this is a place where we, have an opportunity to pursue God until we see all these things come underneath the authority of Christ. I agree with that because actually in this word times it's viruses. Mm-hmm. It's Correct. Opportune moments. opportune moments. That's exactly right. It's not chronos. That's exactly right. And so we have we have this idea that it's not in other words, and this is where we have passive Christianity where we think, well God will do this one day when we get in heaven. But we've already seen that we've already acquired all spiritual blessings in heavenly realms, and it's not something to be set there. It's something that we're to bring heaven into the earth. We're to bring that which Jesus already paid for to be manifested in the earth. Our focus is not on the earth. Our focus is what's in heavenly realms because our desire is not to to duplicate or multiply that which is in the earth. Our, Our requirement or our duty before the Lord, our privilege, if you will, is to take that which Jesus paid for and multiply that in the earth. And so our focus should be in the heavenly realms. But if we sit back and think none of these things take place until 
a specific time frame, like in the millennial reign, then we push off the promises of God to a point that we never get to see. So therefore, there's no need for faith. And there's no need to faithfully follow. I read uh, recently that in our present circumstance, this is, we'll never be able to work in faith again. Like when we get to heaven? That's right. That's correct. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, so when you're in heaven, there's no need for faith. And so all the things that he says for us to faithfully follow, that's a mute point. Correct. That's a great, that's a great point to bring out. Mm-hmm. Yes. It says the fullness of the time. So it's like, you know, we keep thinking like all our lives have been getting ready, getting ready, getting ready for what? You know, he just kept saying like we're getting ready, the Lord's getting us all prepared, prepared. Maybe this is the this time that like we are even in, that fullness of the end mm-hmm. of the great uh, dispensation of grace. And so this is happening now. Yes. I mean, it's just an idea. Correct. It's, but I, I think the for every generation, like you said, we have the opportune the opportunity to acquire that which is in heavenly realms that Jesus paid for to see that manifested here on the earth. I need to say Give me a breather. We have the opportunity to to pursue to pursue that which is in heavenly realms to see it manifest in the earth. Okay, so let but let's just take this let's take this concept and let's apply it to to the scriptures and how do we see this play out in the scriptures? And so you see, Moses had the opportunity to go into the promised land with the children of Israel and conquer that which, or, or to, to walk in and live in the promised land. What happened? They did not acquire it. Why? Because they did not trust God. They looked at what the giants, they looked at the sizes of the food, and they said, oh, they're too big for us. Oh, it's too much for us. And they withdrew from that place of faith. They didn't trust God. As a result, what happened? They had to wander around for 40 years because of their unbelief. So if there is a specific time, and this again goes back, at the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. That means there are opportunities, even in our own lives, even in maybe in the life of a church, in the life of a community of believers, there are times where there is a divine opportunity to see what God has promised fulfilled in and through that generation. And if we are not active in our union with the Lord and faithfully following Him, He can pass us by. Yeah. Just like with you acquiring that property. Correct. You know, you felt that little wrestling that they were, you would have perceived it. Uh-huh. Because they were going to pass Correct. Yeah. Correct. Even though all the testimonies from the other people releasing their bid and coming behind mm-hmm. them and Still going to pass it by, yeah. Oh, well, it's already kind of being taken care of. Mm-hmm. But you 
But but see that but then this is where our theology matters. What we believe about God matters. Yeah. Where the what the word actually says matters. Because if we believe we believe I believe that God is sovereign absolutely, but is the will of God always taking place? No. The Bible makes it very clear. It's the will of God that all men would know him. Do all men know him? No. So so is the scripture wrong or is our our application of the scripture wrong? No. It's just the reality is that while God is sovereign, he has given freedom to men to choose, to trust him or not, to put their faith in Christ or not, to allow the blood of Jesus to cover them or not. And if they receive of that grace through faith, then they're able to acquire all that has been promised. But if on this side of the cross and receiving the blood of Jesus, if you believe the lie that, well, whatever happens is the will of God and you don't have to pursue anything and it's just God is sovereign, He knows what He's doing and so we attribute everything to God's will, what happens? We end up passively just accepting everything. And you hear that, especially around elections. Oh, yeah. And did nothing, did not pursue, did not investigate, did not seek the Lord for His wisdom. Because, again, He's talking about this, and then what does He also talk about? That He's given us what? All wisdom? Mm-hmm. So all, so He's given us revelation of all that's ours. It's, we have this promise that He will pull back the curtain, if you will, for us to see what's in the heavenly realms and give us the understanding to practically walk the application out for that for those truths to being displayed in and through our lives, in and through our community, in and through the places God's called us to. But what happens? You know, in one passage, um, Paul actually says he says to them, he says, "But you become dull and lazy to the point that they could even eat the meat of the word. They were having to still be on the bottle." He gave that illustration because they've not moved from infancy in Christ to the place of maturity in Christ. And, and, and what is the defining element between that which is of infant and that which is of maturity? It's wisdom and understanding and the faith to pr- pursue that, to go after it. It's this, this piece of acquiring and going after what God has promised is the defining mark of maturity versus immaturity versus infancy versus you know a grown person. A child says, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, and they'll cry in their bed all day long and not never go get into food. But at some point they realize, dang, the refrigerator, I can go walk over there and get something out of there. And so what they they will actually utilize the physical capabilities to acquire that which they've been given. Well, in the spirit realm, there are spiritual qualities and benefits that we have in Christ. And those that become mature in Christ, they're able to do what? They're able to hear the voice of the Lord, and they do what? They faithfully follow it. And in doing so, what happens? They're able to acquire that which the Lord promised. It's not, it's not like we have these hard formulas or something. It's, it's hear the voice of the Lord and do it. It's, like, it's elementary. It's not like you have to be really smart to figure it out. It just requires, it requires trusting the Lord and actually pursuing things. Even when it doesn't look like it pans out. But it does require courage. It does. Because, like you said earlier, they did see giants. Yes. The Lord saw it as milk and honey, but they're like, there's giants, you know? (laughs) And so it's that faith. It's like believing without the seeing, you know? The unseen 
So the question the question that gets asked and it, and it gets asked in scripture as well is why did they see the giants and not the huge produce? Well, there were giants. But why did they see them instead of the huge? Because the, the fruit couldn't hurt them, them giants could. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah. good yeah. I mean it, required, it required a stirring of their courage. Okay, so what, what they were getting there. They had to the keep their attention obedience. on what the Lord They what? The key was obedience. The key was obedience. That is the key. They did not obey. But, but why, why did they not obey? What was... The, the fear. fear. Why was their fear present? Something got exalted above God. The bigness of the giants. The of so, so according to Paul here in Ephesus, what does he say is the remedy for this? To, to all praises belong to God. In other words, if they were speaking well of God... In the wilderness, they would have had the courage to walk in the obedience. What did they do instead? They complained against God. They questioned Him continually. And the enemy afforded them when they stepped into a place of of challenge. They had no faith because they had not positioned themselves to faithfully follow the Lord in obedience. And the declarations of the mouth. That's what I'm saying. That that all lines. Right, yeah. what they, we, we're well able, they said. They, we they exactly. Well yep. They saw God, they didn't see the, the giants. But those two were also the ones that followed God and they spoke well of God, and they were able to enter in. Well, it's always going to be that. You know, like even with Peter stepping out of the boat, the waves were there, but he had to keep oh, the yeah. focus. Mm-hmm. So the giants were still there. I don't think they were waving the big oranges and fruits. <laughs> I think <laughs> So if if something is in heavenly realms, the what is it means it's not necessarily present right here. Right. That means in order for it to to be manifested from there to here, it means something's got to change. There's going to have to be a shift. There's going to have to be there'll be things that will fight against it, if even if you will. So there's this the reality it's not present, and so it's it's almost as if we're pioneering something fresh that God's desiring to do, and the courage. To walk that out in the face of opposition comes through our praise and meditation on the goodness of God and the reality of who God is. We have to continue to speak well. The word. He gives you the word. Mm -hmm. You're not on presumption. Mm -hmm. You are on solid foundation. You are following His word in His direction. And and they had had the word. They had the Lord promised them. They had not, and it wasn't just a word. It was a word. That they'd been given almost 500 years prior. Yeah. That this is the land that you would have. This is the land of your descendants. They would go into slavery. They would come out and they would possess the land. They had this over and over again. So it wasn't like it was a surprise. They were, they were told this in the wilderness. 
they've met God face to face. You know, they were out there and he showed up. Of course, they ran. <laughs> Some of those. That goes back to it is they said to Moses, you go meet him. Correct. So they didn't have that personal relationship. Yeah. So they didn't trust him. That's right. They just knew him through somebody else. And the reason why is they wouldn't go in there. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't go in there. being uncomfortable. The flesh of us. Mm-hmm. So we can see how easy it is for people's faith to get shipwrecked and for them to um, yield their identity in Christ in the mi- middle of pressure, in the middle of things happening that require something of us. And so this is why it's so important that we are allowing the Word of God to bathe over us each week Every day, really, and it strengthens us, empowers us, so that we can walk in our identity in Christ and be who God's called us to be. Because there will constantly be wolves that try to ravish the flock. There will be people that will try to come in and do things both on the inside and on the outside. There will be things that are happening on the inside of you where the enemy will try to work things out, speak lies over you, make you want you to believe things that are contrary to the word. Then there'll be pressures on the outside that will constantly be vying for your attention, trying to exalt itself above the Lord. And anything that we place bigger than God in our lives, whether it be a circumstance or a situation, what are we doing? We are, we begin to forfeit our identity in Christ. We separate ourselves from Him and attach ourselves that this is bigger. And, and that, to me, that's I think that's the that's the um, the tragedy that took place in the wilderness for the children of Israel is they they called God by His name, but when Moses went up to the mountain, they formed an image that was not God. It was of a calf, and then they called it God. They literally called it the name of God. And so, so we have this: we can we can go to church and walk with God and call God by name, but actually create an image of God that doesn't exist. Father, we just thank you. For this time that we had around your word, we thank you that you are so gracious and so kind, that you're such a loving father, that when we are in Christ, that the full embrace of who you are is experienced in the Holy Spirit. It's experienced in that heavenly realm that that you did not withhold any good gift from us, that all spiritual blessings and benefits are ours as your children. We've been adopted into the family. We've been chosen We've been elected to be with you forever and ever. So, Father, my prayer is that each one of us would experience that grace and kindness this week, that we would be faithful to follow what you're speaking to our hearts, that we would yield to the Word of God to continue to transform us, and that we would understand that our identity is not wrapped in what we do in the world or or our titles or our bank account or Anything else, our identity is found in you. And it's through our union with you that we find our purpose, that we find wisdom, not just some wisdom, but all wisdom, all understanding. And so, Father, I just thank you for pulling back the curtain and helping us understand the benefits we have in Christ. And that we would not be passive people who just settle for far less than what you paid for, but that we would pursue until Jesus gets his full reward. And we recognize that we are your reward just as you are ours. 
And so we love you. We appreciate you. We thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen.